Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The 2021 Professional Football Researchers Association Convention will be held at the Gold Jacket Lounge at the Pro Football Hall of Fame during the final weekend of June. Convention speakers will celebrate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the NFL. The fee for the convention is $50 for members and $100 for non-members. The fee includes admission to the convention and Pro Football Hall of Fame, meals on Friday evening and Saturday afternoon, and free parking. All convention activities are subject to COVID-19 protocols. For more details, Click on the 2021 PFRA convention link at profootballresearchers.org. In 1947, baseball's color line was broken when Jackie Robinson suited up for and took the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Later that year, the Cleveland Indians and their famed owner, Bill Veck, signed another black ball player to a contract. The fame and notoriety certainly didn't follow Larry Doby like it did Jackie. Nonetheless, he had to endure many of the same obstacles, hurdles, and barriers that Robinson did. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the career of one of baseball's greats, a Hall of Famer, the career Larry this is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 105. Larry Doby. Today, I welcome a very special guest to talk about Doby, who was the first to cross the color line in the American League. From the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, my special guest is the museum's president, Bob Kendrick. It is such a thrill to have Bob on Sports Forgotten Heroes. His knowledge of the game, particularly the history of the Negro Leagues and the phenomenal talent that was a part of this great era of baseball history is, without a doubt, second to none. During our conversation, the facts, the stories, the names that Bob mentioned showed what a treasure he is. And while today's subject, Larry Doby, was the focus going into today's episode, Bob certainly enlightened me with so much more, and I am excited to bring this show to you today. Doby was a terrific baseball player, a member of the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame, and 
the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Dobie was actually on the radar of Cleveland's owner, the legendary Bill Veck, long before Branch Rickey thought about bringing the great Jackie Robinson to Brooklyn. But, as fate would have it, Rickey did beat Veck for a myriad of reasons in becoming the first to initiate the integration of Major League Baseball. And I'm going to get into all of that with Bob. Additionally, I'm sure there are very few of you who know this. Bob and I will touch upon the three other men who also broke the color line in 1947. Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead. Like I said, I bet there are very few of you out there who know that in 1947 there were actually five black men who played in Major League Baseball. As Jackie Robinson, and rightfully so, gets all the fanfare with Larry Doby soaking up most of the rest of the notoriety that comes along with being the first to do something. He was the first in the American League. Now, before we get into today's episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, I want to thank those of you who have found the podcast through my website, sportsfh.com. I've found more topics to talk about, and I have a few shows on the docket based on your suggestions. And of course, I would love to hear from more of you, and I encourage you to check out sportsfh.com. That's where you can make suggestions, submit questions for future episodes, learn more about my guests, the forgotten heroes we talk about, and so much more. Again, that's sportsfh.com. Also, please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Check out the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook, and look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating. As always, thank you for your support. So, Larry Doby, he made an immediate impact on the Indians in his first full season, 1948. He had played sparingly in 1947 after he was signed by the team and brought on the roster midway through the season. But as a full-time player in 1948, he helped Cleveland to the American League pennant as he hit 301 with 14 homers and 66 RBI. In the World Series, he connected for another home run and hit 318 as the Tribe downed the Boston Braves in six games to win the series, which also happens to be the last time the World Series was won by Cleveland. It was the start to a career that took Doby all the way to Cooperstown. And here to tell us more about Larry Doby is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Bob Kendall. Bob, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. It is both an honor and a pleasure to have you here with us. And I got to tell you, I am truly thrilled that you accepted my invitation, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, Warren, it's a pleasure, man, to be on the show, and thanks so much for the invite. 
uh, anytime. So, Bob, I'd like to start with this. Please tell us more about the museum itself, your role, and how the museum preserves the history of the Negro Leagues. Well, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum was established in 1990 as a 501c3 not-for-profit organization with a mission of preserving and celebrating and illuminating the rich history of African-American baseball and its profound impact on the social advancement of America. We started this museum, one in a little tiny one-room office here at Historic 18th and Vine, and guys like the late great Buck O'Neill and other local Negro Leaguers who were still with us at that time literally took turns paying the monthly rent to keep that little office open. And as I like to say with it, our hopes and dreams of one day building a facility that would pay rightful tribute, not only to one of the great chapters in black baseball history, but one of the great chapters in American history. And that is the rich and compelling and inspirational story of the Negro Leagues. And so we set on that journey. And here we are now, 31 years later, graduating from that little one-room office as we did in 1997 to now 10,000 square feet of exhibit space that chronicles the story of Black baseball in America and the professional Negro Leagues specifically. But, you know, over that course of time, we're now recognized as America's national Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, something that we are, as you could well imagine, inherently proud of Mm -hmm. for a little museum that no one gave any chance of succeeding when we started this project in that little tiny one-room office in 1990. And so it's been an amazing journey. It really has. And we're so proud of the work that we're doing to shine light on a story that had escaped the pages of American history books. Mm-hmm. And people are fascinated by this story. Oh. And they're fascinated by the tremendous talent that called the Negro Leagues home. Most definitely. I would imagine, though, that one of the most difficult tasks your staff and researchers have to undertake almost all the time is the search for those who played in the leagues and finding evidence of their statistics. How difficult is that? And how do you go about that? It's challenging, as you can well imagine. Now, fortunately for us, we've had the great fortune of having so many historians and researchers do a lot of the heavy lifting in that particular area. Mm-hmm. And, and there had been you know, a large number of folks who had been, they dedicated their lives to this history. And so as we came along, we could use some of that information that was made available at that time. Fortunately, the museum story is not really predicated on stats. Mm-hmm. It, is pre- it is more predicated on bringing to light this piece of history. The story is what really drives this. Mm-hmm. And, and most people didn't know the story. Now, the researchers have done a tremendous job of creating quantifiable data to bring the statistical aspect of this story to life for those who really need that. You know, baseball is this wonderful and beautiful game Mm -hmm. of comparisons and statistics. And and that had always been the knock on the Negro Leagues that the statistics, even if they were there, they weren't reliable. And there was always a level of skepticism around the numbers as it relates to the Negro Leagues. And sometimes these almost larger-than-life somewhat mythical-like figures Mm. who call the Negro Leagues home. Mm -hmm. And and so through the years, 
the researchers have done a tremendous job on unearthing these statistics, this statistical data that so many feel like they need, they have to have it in order to give justification for how great this mm. league really was. We've never felt compelled that the numbers had to be there to quantify how great these leagues were, but I'm glad that it is there. And I tip my cap to all who've dedicated themselves to the research aspect of creating the statistical data mm-hmm. that's necessary that led us to the, the December announcement of Major League Baseball recognizing the Negro Leagues for exactly what it was, a major league. Yeah, and I, I actually jotted this down because th- that's an interesting question for me anyway, that Major League Baseball did announce that it will recognize statistics accumulated by players who appeared in the Negro Leagues. But maybe not all of them. And this is where I get a little confused. And maybe you could clarify this for me. And if I'm wrong, please tell me I'm wrong. When you look at two of perhaps the most famous or well-known ball players who both played in the Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball, Willie Mays and Hank Aaron, who played for yeah. the Birmingham Bear, uh, Black Barons and the Indianapolis Clowns, respectively. It's my understanding, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that the numbers they posted while in the Negro Leagues won't be counted. So how is it being determined what stats are to be included and what stats aren't? Yeah, well, the statistical time frame that they use for this decision goes from 1920 through 1948. Ah. So it would encompass at least a year or maybe two years of Willie Mays' career. Unfortunately for Henry Aaron, he didn't start playing in the Negro Leagues until 1952. So his numbers won't be accounted for, uh, at least at this time, at, at least at this time. There's still hope that this will expand over time to go into, I hope, at least the early 1950s, because you got to understand that by 1948, there was only seven black players in Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. And so there was still a, a lot of great talent that was still there in the Negro Leagues. And and so, yeah, it would be great to see their numbers eventually included after 1948. But, you know, we'll see how that ultimately kind of moves forward. But right now, the time span goes from 1920 to 1948. And so that's why they're not included. Like I said, although it would carry over for at least a year, maybe two years of Willie Mays' career. Mm-hmm. But you know, and, Willie and, Mays started in the Negro Leagues. He was 17 years old. Right, right. He was really young. So I guess the the games or the years that guys like Larry Doby, who we're going to be talking about, and Jackie Robinson, of course, some of their statistics then from the Negro, Negro Leagues would would be carried over. It would, absolutely. So the players that you'll see probably the largest impact on will be those players who were who played in that time frame who moved into Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. So Larry Doby had a significant career in the Negro Leagues. The, the late, great Monty Irvin also had a significant re- career, many Minoso. Uh, his numbers will help improve his overall numbers. You know, for instance, Monty Irvin 
was a two two ninety three lifetime hitter in the major leagues. Now keep in mind, he didn't get to the major leagues until he was thirty years old, mm. And, and, mm. and so he was seven tenths of a point away from a three hundred wow. lifetime batting average. And so, you know, but it's amazing when you hit that 300 plateau, they just look at you differently. Yeah, you know, they do. 293, you were an okay hitter. Seven-tenths of a point more, you were a great hitter. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how that's how we are about numbers. We're such sticklers about numbers. Well, Monty Irvin's career was so prolific in the Negro Leagues that his lifetime batting average will now be above 300 when you apply the formula that we believe is going to be used to to help integrate these numbers into the annals of Major League Baseball history. And so you'll see kind of market improvements in some of those numbers for players like that. Uh, you know, players like Josh Gibson, when you start to just whittle it completely down to league games, then his numbers are not going, home run totals are not going to look as prolific as we know them to be because you know, he had all these home runs against all levels of competition, including major leaguers. Mm-hmm. But those numbers and games won't be accounted for. It'll only be official league games. And of course, they were only playing, they were playing a fraction of the number of games in comparison to major league baseball at that time. So for those who are into numbers, you'll have to dive a little deeper and start to look at his home run per at bat, you know, ratio. And they're off the charts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then you look at his lifetime batting averages and those kinds of things. You know, in 1943, he hit 441 in a, in a, in a Negro League season. Mm. And so will wow. that now be recognized as the all-time mm. Major League batting average yeah. for a single season? I mean, so we're still waiting to see how these numbers will be applied. But it, it certainly opens up a po- the possibility of a lot of what-ifs. Yeah. Yeah. And baseball, you know, more so than any other sport really relies on numbers and you measure the status of a ball player, what they did over the course of their career by the number. And you take a look at a more recent player, a guy like a Fred McGriff, who hit 493 home runs, seven more, and he is sitting in Cooperstown. Yeah. And they look at him totally different. If he gets seven more home runs, yeah. which he probably would have gotten, uh, and Fred, we inducted Fred into the Negro League Baseball Museum's Hall of Game a few years ago. Mm. You know, the crime dog should absolutely be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. No doubt. And one last question before we get to today's topic of Larry Doby, and that has to do with the National Baseball Hall of Fame. For those who have visited Cooperstown and the Hall of Fame, how do the two museums differ? And do you ever work in conjunction with each other? Oh, yeah. No, we're great friends with the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, We've both shared information and particularly photography with one another and and they're very supportive of this project and i think the biggest difference between the two museums the hall of fame is this hollow hall just filled with great stuff Mm -hmm. i mean if you like stuff they got stuff galore (laughs) you know and, and i wish we had as much stuff we don't but thankfully it is not the stuff that drives this museum it's the story mm-hmm. and it's a very powerful inspirational compelling story particularly the way that we bring that story to life 
Mm-hmm. And that is what I think is the biggest difference between the two museums. We're just 10,000 square feet of exhibit space. But man, within those 10,000 square feet is a lot of information. Mm. And it's it's very emotional. You feel this when you go through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And you don't have to be a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. If you are a fan of American history, you're going to love this museum. If you are a fan of the underdog overcoming adversity to go on to greatness, you're going to love this museum. But man, if you're a baseball fan to boot, you are in hog heaven because it combines the best of both worlds. And and I think that's why people really love the experience when they come here. Well, I can tell you, Bob, if I ever get a chance to head out your way, that museum will certainly be on the top of my list. I've been to so many wonderful museums around the country, and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is on my bucket list to eventually visit. So maybe one day I'll get out there and enjoy some great barbecue and visit the museum. Well, I I certainly hope so, man. It is such a special place. It really is. And, you know, now that things are opening back up again and you know, we shut down last year in mm. March of last year and we reopened in June of last year, mm. but open, of course, under the city of Kansas City's 25 percent capacity COVID protocol. Mm-hmm. But we've been seeing guests come out. Mm-hmm. And even at the time of this recording, as the baseball season is about to start opening day tomorrow here in Kansas City, uh which is April 1st, we had, we, we were able to welcome the Texas Rangers to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum oh, today. Oh, cool, cool. And, and I didn't get a chance to do a lot of that last year just because of the strict, you know, quarantining mm-hmm. that was going on as we were all dealing with this crazy pandemic, and we're still dealing with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, slowly but surely, we're pulling ourselves out of this thing. But I got a chance to welcome the guys here today and players as well as other members of the organization and it just felt more normal you know we're not there yet but it still felt like it was more normal that we're moving toward a level of normalcy and 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 so it was i enjoyed it i enjoyed it immensely and it never gets old for me every Mm -hmm. time i get to take these young athletes through the museum it is always just exciting for me as the very first time that i did it Well, be remiss for me not to follow that up with this. What is it like for them when they go through it? I mean, how does a Major League Baseball player touring your museum, what is the reaction they have when they're they're going through this? They're in awe. They they are absolutely in awe. Um, I think they gain an appreciation because most of the young athletes don't know this story. Sure. And and as my late mother would say, you don't know what you don't know. I love that statement. (laughs) I know. How can I do that? I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. And and it's my job to help them know. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So when they come here, they're in awe. Number one, they understand how difficult this game is to play under the best of circumstances. Mm-hmm. When you make your living in a game like this, you know you know the challenges of a game. This game is predicated on failure. Yeah. Uh, failure is at the crux of this game. You're going to fail more times than you succeed 
in this game, particularly uh, as an offensive player in this game. And so you already know how tough this game is. And now they're being introduced to a segregated society and these courageous athletes playing against the backdrop of American segregation. But the thing that I share with them, Warren, that they have in common with those who played in the Negro Leagues, Mm -hmm. it's just simply love of the game. You Mm. play this game because you love it. Sure. And sometimes we as fans can get a little fickle because we equate everything in our society to money. Mm -hmm. And so because these athletes are afforded an opportunity to make a really good living playing this game, we just kind of assume that they don't like the game as much as the players of yesteryear. Yeah, they do. They're still playing a game that they played as a kid for free. And quite frankly, if they had to play the game today for free, they would. So, yeah, they love the game. Mm -hmm. But as I share with them, you will never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You see, they had to love it in order to endure the things that they had to endure. So, yeah, yeah, they're blown away. They're blown away when I tell them the stories of the fact that these athletes could ride into a town, fill up the ballpark, and yet not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them or not have a place to stay. So they would sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a place that would offer them basic services. But they never let that kill their love of the game. So their mindset was, okay, well, if I've got to sleep on the bus and if I've got to eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. You can't rob me of this joy of playing ball. And I think they all can relate to that. And I think as a result, it creates a bond, you know, that they didn't expect at the time. But more so, I think it gives them perspective, a much greater perspective on just how good they have things because, you know, it's a natural, I think it's just natural for us as human beings to find a reason to complain about something. You know, it's just <laughs> part of who we are. We've got to find something to complain about even when we don't have anything to complain about. We still got to find something. And, and I think for them, it just gives them a much better perspective of just how good they really have it and that they really don't have anything to complain about. You are so right. Wow, that's 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 so great. Hey, let's start. You know, one of the things that you said is the museum is filled with stories. And I think the story of Larry Doby is terrific. So I want to start with this. Larry Doby broke into the major leagues in 1947. That's the same year Jackie Robinson broke in. (laughs) Now, of course, Larry didn't debut for the Cleveland Indians until much later in the season. However, he was the second African-American to cross the color line, and he was the first to do so in the American League. Yet, there is, at least in my estimation, and I think anyone would be hard-pressed to to oppose this opinion, there is so little fanfare surrounding him. Jackie, and rightfully so, 
has incredible notoriety around him and his his accomplishments are incredible. But when it comes to Larry, the notoriety is nothing, nothing in comparison. Is this fair? Is it fair that Larry Doby gets so little credit for what he did? Of course not. But that's <laughs> the way we are. That's the way we are as a society. We always celebrate the first. We rarely ever remember the second. I tell people all the time, you know, who was the second man on the moon? You know, nobody really hardly ever knows the answer to that to that question because that's just how we are societally. But Larry Doby went through just as much. Some might even argue even more than Jackie because he was playing in Cleveland. And Cleveland was not the urban center that Brooklyn was. And the national media was following Jackie. And really nobody was paying Larry Doby any attention. Larry Doby was 23 years old when he joined the Cleveland Indians. He was just a baby Mm. thrown into a powder keg of racism. Larry Doby never played a day in the minor leagues. He went straight from the Newark Eagles over to Cleveland. And, And so, no, he should not be forgotten. It's only been over the last decade or so that people have finally started to pay rightful tribute to Larry Doby's pioneering role in this whole equation of breaking baseball's color barrier. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, he joins the Cleveland Indians just literally weeks after Jackie. But you think about this, Warren, there were five guys who go up in 1947. So you think Larry Doby hadn't gotten any attention. The other guys are really the answers to a trivia question. Hank Thompson, Willett Brown, and Dan Bankhead. So all these guys go up in 1947. And, And so, but, you know, nobody really had heard very much about those players and which is one of the reasons it prompted us to create a new exhibition that we call barrier breakers and the barrier breaker exhibit chronicles all of the players who broke their respective major league teams color barriers from jackie robinson in 1947 with brooklyn through elijah pomsey green being the last to complete the integration cycle 12 years later Mm. in 1959 with the Boston Red Sox. Mm -hmm. It took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player. But we felt like these players deserve to be more than just a footnote in baseball and American history. Mm -hmm. And that it was important for us to document and chronicle and substantiate their pioneering roles. Because I can tell you this, And I'll say this with no hesitation. It didn't get any easier for Pumpsy Green in 1959 in Boston than it did for Jackie in 1947. They all had their trials and tribulations as they were trying to blaze their path to play this game in Major League Baseball. And and so they shouldn't be forgotten. And so we tore up an entire section of the museum to bring this story to light as well. Mm-hmm. And not only did we focus on those those baseball pioneers, we also set the stage for what triggered integration in our game. And if we were going to point to any single event, it would have been World War II. And with World War II, you had the irony of young black soldiers dying, fighting the same racism in another country that we're being asked to accept here at home. 
Mm. And so that is what led to integrating America's so-called national pastime. The sentiment was this. If they could die fighting for their country, they ought to be able to play baseball in this country. And really, that's what gave Branch Rickey the needed momentum to go try and make this bold move to break baseball's six-decade-long self-imposed color barrier. Well, I want you to know that I did my research before this because I have questions here about Willard Brown, Hank Thompson, and 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 Dan Bankhead. So real quickly, <laughs> oh, but I got to address this first. The second man to walk on the moon was Buzz Aldrin. Okay. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So, so Willard Brown. Buzz don't get Buzz, yeah. Buzz gets no love. <laughs> he doesn't want to be. Re- he did not want to be referred to as the second man on the moon. All right. So, um, yeah. So Jackie was first. Larry was second. And then along comes Willard Brown, who played for the St. Louis Browns. And I believe he Uh played uh, 21 games at a home run and he hit 179. That was the only season he played the majors. Hank Thompson. Thompson Yeah, he had a decent career. He played for nine years. He hit 129 home runs over the course of that, his best season. Uh, came in 54, the year that the Giants beat the Indians in the World Series. Uh, uh, Hank had uh, 26 homers, 86 ribbies, and hit 263. And Dan Bankhead joined Jackie later in 47 with Brooklyn. Um, Dan played three full uh three seasons parts of three seasons in the majors uh his three years uh nine and five as a, a pitcher and um he had a career era of six five two but let's go back now to um to to larry a real general question and i am sure you could probably talk for hours but succinctly if you can tell us who was Larry Doby and where did he come from? Larry Doby was a star player in the Negro Leagues who was a great athlete growing up in that Patterson, New Jersey area uh, where he was a multi-sport star, collegiate athlete, actually played on an assumed name. You know, he would have shut a program down under today's standards, but he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to give up his amateur status while he was playing professional baseball in the Negro Leagues tremendous baseball player. As I mentioned, he never played a day in the minor leagues. He goes to Cleveland directly from the Newark Eagles, where their owner was Effa Manley. Effa mm-hmm. Manley owned and operated the Newark Eagles. And Bill Vett came to go get Larry Doby away from Effa Manley. And she wanted to fight because she had fought Branch Rickey about Monty Irvin, mm-hmm. the great Monty Irvin, who could have been the first. As a matter of fact, Monty Irvin was the Negro League's owner's choice that if someone was going to break the color barrier, they thought it should be Monty Irvin. Hmm. Monty Irvin was a superstar player in the Negro Leagues. I tell people all the time, I wish Major League Baseball could have gotten Monty Irvin when he was 20, 21 years old, when there was nothing that he couldn't do. Hmm. As I mentioned earlier in the show, he gets to the Major Leagues, he's 30 years old. He's just a, he's a shell of himself, mm-hmm. but he was still very good as a major leaguer. And so he and Larry Doby were on the same team together. So as you can see, this was a dynamite Newark Eagle Town team. And then you throw in Hall of Famer Leon Day. So they had three Hall of Famers 
that were there on that team in the 40s, Leon Day was just unfortunately too old to go to the major leagues. He missed this opportunity. Leon Day, one of the greatest pitchers in baseball history, but also one of the greatest two-way players in, in, in baseball history. And, and so the late great Buck O'Neill would say of Leon Day that he was a better center fielder than he was pitcher, and he's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a pitcher. So Larry was on this team with this kind of talent. And, and so Bill Vex signs him away, and he pays Effamanley. You know, Effa Manley realized that she was against the rock in a hard place. She she wasn't going to be able to fight these Major League Baseball owners off for too long. Mm-hmm. And so Bill Vett came in and said, I'll give you $5,000 for Larry Doby, <laughs> which is a bargain mm-hmm. for a future Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And, and Effa Manley wrote him a letter and said, well, you know, Mr. Vett, I know that I'm in a position now where it's going to be difficult for me to fight back. But if you think five, if Larry Doby was right, you would be paying $100,000 or more for this player. But if you think $5,000 is fair, then I guess I have no choice. Well, Bill Vag was different. Bill Vag had a little bit more heart. So what did he do? He upped the ante. He pays an additional $5,000 and gives Larry Doby a $5,000 signing bonus. But what does this do? This now opens the door for other Negro League owners to start selling their star players to the major leagues. And, and basically, at that point, it becomes a fire sale. You're now trying to groom players and develop them as quick as you possibly can in hopes that you can now sell them to the major leagues so that you can get something out of this before the business of black baseball ended. It wasn't a matter of if. It was simply a matter of when after Jackie breaks the color barrier. Mm-hmm. And so Larry Doby's in that pipeline. Hank Thompson, who you talked about, and you gave a kind of a statistical impression of Hank Thompson. Mm-hmm. That 1954 season you talk about, you got to remember Henry Thompson was a uh, infielder, uh, and Henry Thompson holds the distinction of breaking the color barrier on two major league teams. The only player to break the color barrier on two major league teams was Henry Thompson. So he actually takes the field, you know, maybe a day before Willett Brown does, and then Willett Brown. Both of them have been teammates with the Kansas City Monarchs, and then Willett Brown joins him over with the St. Louis Browns. And you talked about that one home run. It was in Willett Brown's first game. Mm. And Willett Brown comes into the game as a pinch hitter. And mm. he borrows a teammate's bat and he hits a home run. Wow. What happens when he gets back to the dugout? Teammate broke the bat. <laughs> broke the bat. So welcome welcome to the major leagues. You know, so it wasn't like these guys were welcome with open arms. Dan Bankhead, when he gets to the major leagues, he's that trivia question. Who is the first black pitcher in major league baseball history? Most assumed that it was Satchel. Mm. But Satchel, Satchel, the great Satchel Page didn't get there until a year later, 1948. It was indeed Dan Bankhead, who absolutely, one, had electric stuff. Had electric stuff. But the legendary Buck O'Neill surmised that Bankhead, who was from Alabama, when he got to the major leagues, he couldn't harness his control because he was fearful of what might happen if he hit a white batter. And so he couldn't, he wouldn't pitch inside. And I don't care how great your stuff, unless your name is Satchel Page, if you don't pitch inside, you're not going to get these guys out. Nope. And, and so he, he didn't have much success, but Bankhead was the first black pitcher to hit a home run. Yeah, he homered in his first game. Oh, first wow. State appearance. wow. First wow. And, and so, you know, tremendous athletes. These pitchers in the Negro Leagues were tremendous athletes because so many of them were great two-way players. Don Newcomb was used, utilized quite a lot 
quite a bit, I should say, as a pinch hitter. Uh, and he was proud of the fact that he could hit. Mm. Uh, and so I think Newt liked talking hitting more than he did pitching. So, <laughs> you know, but Larry Doby would go on to help Cleveland win its last World Series. Sure, 1948. 1948. Yep. 1948. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, but again, those guys that you mentioned, those five guys that we just talked about, you know, Henry Thompson had Hall of Fame pedigree. It was only his personal demons that probably derailed his career. Henry Thompson, Monty Irvin, and Willie Mays formed the major's first black outfield. But again, Henry Thompson was an infielder by, by trade. It just speaks to the versatility. But Willard Brown never got a fair chance. Willard Brown never got a fair chance. See, the St. Louis Browns thought that Hank Thompson and Willard Brown would do for them what Jackie had done for Brooklyn. But the truth of the matter is, if you're in St. Louis, you're a Cardinal fan. Nobody cared about the St. Louis. <laughs> no one cared about the Browns. And, and, and Willard Brown is on record saying that he left a better team in the Kansas City Monarchs than he did when he joined the St. Louis Browns. They were a sideshow. And, and so when when they didn't draw the black fan base that Brooklyn was getting, St. Louis promptly dismissed both of them. And then both would come back to the Monarchs and then Henry Thompson would move on to the New York Giants and Willard Brown would spend the rest of his career playing in the Negro Leagues. Willard Brown is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. That's how good Willard Brown was. Mm. Wow. Wow. And Thompson was a terrific ball player. I don't know about the personal demons he might have had or what yeah, no, it was no, no, it no. that... that you know, but, you know, yeah. Because yeah, he, he was done player. by the time he was 30 years old. Yeah, yes, yeah. But, you know, you, you got to also think how much it took took out of you playing in the Negro Leagues. Oh, man, the wear and tear, the long bus rides, you know, dealing with Jim Crow, not knowing where you can get something to eat, sleeping on the bus. You know, I, I'm not going to say it was like dog years, but it damn near was. You know, it took its toll on these players physically, mentally, emotionally. And for them to perform at the level in which they did under that set of circumstances is is more than commendable. It is almost unthinkable, you know, how good they were under the set of circumstances mm -hmm. that they were playing this game. And they played in a lot of the same stadiums that the Major League Baseball teams played in. They just, you know, Major League owners wanted something to make money when oh, their yeah. teams weren't there. And boy, yeah. did they charge a pretty penny in rent. Well, and that was one of the reasons that it took so long to integrate this game because there were so many major league teams that were making money off the Negro Leagues. I tell people all the time, the biggest difference between the Negro Leagues and the major leagues was simply money. The major leagues had more money. They had their own stadiums. And so the Negro Leagues, only a, only a few of their teams had their own stadiums. So by and large, they were renting the ballpark from those major league teams. And so in those scenarios, the major league teams were getting a percentage of the gate and likely all of the concession. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, as a result, those teams were in no hurry to see integration because they understood that if we integrate this game, we're going to put the Negro Leagues out of business yeah. <laughs> and you're going to take away a source of revenue from me that they weren't having to work that hard to get. Yeah, makes sense. All right, let's get back to Larry here. 
Bill Veck. Now, you talked about Bill and Effa Manley. I think, just like Larry, Bill Veck doesn't get the credit for what oh, no. he did to bring Larry no. along. He doesn't get the same credit that Branch Ricky did. And interestingly, and maybe you could clear this up for me, in my research for this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes with you, Bob, my research, there is evidence that shows that Vec wanted to do this before Branch Ricky did. Oh, well before Branch Ricky. Yeah, so talk about yeah. Bill Vec and how, you know, you, you got into some detail there about how he finally was able to pry Larry away from Newark. But talk about Bill Vec and how he wanted to integrate the game long before Branch Ricky. Yeah, no, Bill Vec made the mistake of saying that he, he wanted to buy the Philadelphia team. Uh, and and they were prepared to sell Vec the team. And then Vec goes on record saying he's going to fill the team with black stars. Mm -hmm. and, com and Commissioner Landis nixed this deal right away. Now, oh, no, we can't sell the team to you. <laughs> we're not going to do that. <laughs> and, and I think Vec would have attempted to do that because that was Bill Vec. He was very progressive. You know, some would say aloof in some ways. And so when he did stuff, the other owners just kind of kind of basically waved it off, just saying that's Bill Vec being Bill Vec. You know, and so by the time he takes ownership of the Cleveland Indians, he he could do exactly what he had wanted to do all along. And that was to bring black stars into the fold. And so he signs Larry Doby. The next year he signs Satchel Page. And everybody in baseball was barking at him. Because he signed Satchel Page. Oh, you're turning our game into a sideshow. If Satchel Page, you know, he's he's too old, he's too this, and, and if he was white, you would never even think about giving him a chance at that age. And Bill Beck, Bill Vex's rebuttal was, had Satchel Page been white, he'd have been in the major leagues years before mm. now. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so, and honestly, I don't know if Vec realized that the old man still had some gas in the tank, but the old man still had some gas in the tank. He sure did. Now, I know he knew that Satchel would be a big draw. And, and Satchel was just that. He was a gate attraction in his own right and had been throughout his career. And so he, going, he goes over to join Larry in 1948. And you go back and look at that 48 season Satchel doesn't get called up until July of 1948. Mm -hmm. He compiles a 6-1 record with a 2.4 ERA at age 42, which means he likely was closer to 52 <laughs> because Satchel never really told his real age. And, and honestly, I'm not sure Satchel knew his real age, but most <laughs> believe that he was at least 10 years older than what he claimed to be. And he was still winning at the major league level at an ungodly age for a pitcher. I don't care if it was 42 or 52. Yeah. And, and so Satchel, the runs that he gave up in 48 primarily came when he was in the bullpen. When they put the old man in the starting rotation, man, he was lights out. Yeah, he had three and complete his, games. Yes. His first three starts in Cleveland drew over 200,000 fans. Wow. 
he had two shutouts in his first three starts. And he starts in a game in Chicago, Comiskey Park. They got 51,000 plus. It was filled to capacity. And they had another 12,000 who couldn't get in the ballpark. Wow. Wanted to see the old man pitch. He beats the White Sox five to nothing. Shut them out. Then they go back home to Cleveland where Municipal Stadium, huge ballpark. You know, they've got 78,000 plus in the ballpark to see the old man pitch again. He shuts out the White Sox again, one to nothing. Larry Doby drives in the winning run. Now he is off and flying. And Cleveland, if you recall, won the pennant by one game. Mm -hmm. One game. They don't win the pennant without Satchel Paige. And then they go on to win the World Series. And, of course, Larry Doby has a great World Series. Satchel only got, uh, you know, a couple of brief outings Mm -hmm. in that World Series. I, I Really, they didn't do him fairly, given how much he had contributed to get them there. But nevertheless, that just gives you an indication to the forward thinking of Bill Vec, the innovativeness of Bill Vec, uh, but also how talented Satchel was. And it just makes you wonder, what was he like in his prime? Sure. All right. We got to circle back around to Larry. Um, and I guess we're going to circle back to Larry by going through Jackie. So the two of them break in in 47, Jackie first, and then Larry. What kind of relationship did Jackie and Larry have? And was Larry ever jealous of Jackie? And what kind of respect did the two have for each other? I think they had tremendous respect and admiration. They were cut from the same cloth. The only difference is that Larry wasn't nearly as fiery and feisty outwardly as Jackie was. I think he had an internal flame that burned, but you know, they were cut from the same cloth from the standpoint that these were both college educated athletes that both served in the military. So we're talking about the identical same qualities that really prepared both of them to succeed at the major league level. And so you could see it from all-star games and then eventually barnstorming games that Jackie would pull together with Negro league all-stars And that there was always this great admiration. And I think it was the same for all the black players as they came up to the Mm -hmm. major league. You know, there was obviously deep rooted competitiveness amongst all the players, but there was also you're pulling for them to succeed because you knew how important this was. You knew that everybody was watching and, and in order for others to continue to get the opportunity, they had to succeed. So they felt that pressure. You know, not they felt the pressure of not only having to play well, but they also felt the pressure of carrying a race of people in doing so. Mm-hmm. And, and so as a result, there was always, I think, a very close camaraderie amongst those black players, because, again, they were still somewhat isolated. Wasn't that many of them? You know, because what, what you would typically see was a team would bring one and then eventually bring another so that that player wouldn't be so terribly isolated. Mm, makes and, sense. Uh-huh. So, you know, naturally when they got together playing against one another, they gravitated to one another. And, and like I said, in the off season, they played barnstorming, took on barnstorming tours and those kinds of things. But I do think Jackie had great admiration for Larry. And I don't think there was any jealousy. Mm-hmm. You know, I do think some of the players, you know, I think Satchel lamented the fact that he wasn't the first. 
but he also understood why Jackie was the first. And, 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 and for Satchel, it was probably difficult because he was, in many ways, the Negro Leagues. He's yeah. the Negro League's biggest star. Yeah. And, and Jackie was still a relative unknown when it came to baseball. Mm-hmm. But you have to remember, baseball was Jackie's weakest sport. He much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was a baseball player. A star at UCLA. Himself, yes. He turns himself into a Hall of Fame caliber baseball player. Wow. Hey, let me ask you this. When Larry first joined Cleveland, and I'm sure there were teammates that were not happy about it, but were there teammates who accepted him? What was it like for Larry? Well, Bill Vec helped them accept him. And Branch Rickey, Branch Rickey helped the Dodger teammates accept Jackie Robinson. They did it, they did it unwillingly. But they came around. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but, and that's what I'm saying. You know, as these guys are moving into the major leagues, Warren, it's not like they were being welcomed with open arms. No, I imagine you know, not. You're, 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 you're walking into a clubhouse where they didn't really want you there. And, and then there was a certain level of fear that accompanied this. Because when Jackie came up, when Larry came up, they took somebody's job yeah. and they took the yeah. job of a friend. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there's anger around that. And then there's fear to the fact that, wait a minute, if there are more to come, I might lose my job. You know, so this is looming and hanging over those players as well. Now you start to move into this realm of self-preservation. You're mm-hmm. trying to protect what you think is yours. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you allow this influx of black and Hispanic talent in, I might lose my job. And, and so fear had as much to do with this as the social conditions of our time. And so many of these players were, were Southerners. They were from the deep South. Yeah. And so they they had been, it really had been kind of deep-rooted and embedded in them to have this disdain for black folks, even if you didn't know them. You know, it's hard to imagine that you dislike somebody that you don't know, which I still think is one of the dumbest things that I've ever seen, even to this day, that we dislike people we don't even know. (laughs) But we dislike them just because of the melatonin in their skin, you know, which makes no No sense. sense. Makes no No sense. sense. And so you can imagine how prevalent that was at that time and so there was an inherent fear from these players of dealing with the unknown. You hadn't spent any time around a black person. You didn't know what this was going to be like. But as both of these tremendous ball players started to help their teams win, all of a sudden, color became less significant. Yeah. And they became more accepting. But what you, I think what you find, and you find this in baseball more than any other sport, because the season's so long. You know, we're talking about so many games. Now, all of a sudden, these things that I heard about you and these things that you heard about me, well, you're seeing they're not true. Yeah. And, and Larry Doby and, and and Jackie Robinson were both very intellectual beings. In fact, they might have been the most intellectual players on their respective teams. <laughs> you know, I have to go back and look at both the Dodger and Indian rosters 
to see how many of them had actually gone to college. Yeah. You know, good point. And, and, yep. and so, and, and so, yeah, they, they were equipped to handle it. Didn't mean that it made it any easier for them, but they were tremendously talented athletes and they had tremendously, uh, a tremendous amount of intestinal fortitude because mm-hmm. you had to have that. Yeah. If I'm... you were going to succeed in that environment, you had to have it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You had to have thick skin. Oh, yes, indeed. You know, some of the racism that Jackie had to endure is very well documented, especially in the movie 42. The crap he had to put up with and the way it was depicted, especially by the Philadelphia Phillies and their manager, Ben Chapman, is nothing less than disgusting. It's just it's mind blowing that 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 kind of stuff happened. But what about Larry? What did he face? And again, in my research for this episode, I read about a guy who was allegedly hired by the Philadelphia Athletics to make life difficult for Larry. And every time the Indians came to Philly, this guy would just hoot and holler and say whatever came to mind about Larry and the color of his skin. And then he would follow Larry from city to city and do it over and over again, allegedly. And allegedly, he stopped and grew to respect the talents of Larry Doby. Yeah. Do, yeah. do you know anything about this? You know, I had not heard that story, but it doesn't surprise me. And, and the outcome doesn't surprise me either. Because again, I think after a while, number one, one, it takes so much energy to hate another human being that you don't know. It takes so much energy to hate anybody, you know, under any circumstances. So now you're in the midst of trying to hate this guy and then all of a sudden, there's an affinity growing for this guy. Mm-hmm. You're watching how he conducted himself, and, and you're not being able to rattle him and shake him like you thought you might would have been able to do so. And yet he's still continuing to perform and perform at a high level. And all of a sudden, the real humanness in us starts to come out. Mm-hmm. We're not born to hate anyone. We're not necessarily. No, it's equipped. taught. You're, hate it's is taught. taught. Yes, yes. And, and so that story you know, on both sides of the equation doesn't surprise me, even though I've not heard that story before. Well, you know, so the Philadelphia Athletics allegedly hired someone to do this to Larry. We know, as y- you had mentioned, that Larry comes into the clubhouse and, you know, he took somebody's job. I never really thought about that. Yes, yes. What about the fans in Cleveland? What did they think about all of this when Larry Doby came along? What were the, what were, how were the Cleveland fans? And, And that's what I talk about. Cleveland, while there were still a number of black folks in Cleveland, it wasn't nearly the urban center that Brooklyn was. Uh, And so the fans, I don't think that the true baseball fan came to the ballpark to hate anybody. I think the people who came to the ballpark were just like the people, like the man you described. They came expressly to spill hate Mm. and and, and vitriol. 
I don't know if they were baseball fans. You know, I think the true baseball fan, all they see is a baseball player. And, and the reason I say that, and, and I think it particularly resonates through the eyes of a child. Because when Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, it wasn't just black kids saying, I'm Jackie Robinson. You saw white kids saying, I'm Jackie Robinson. Hmm. You see white kids in those clips trying to get an autograph and a picture taken with Jackie Robinson. Why? Because they didn't see Jackie Robinson, the black baseball player. They saw Jackie Robinson, the baseball player. The great I want to be Jackie player, Robinson because yeah. I like the way Jackie Robinson played. I like the way he runs the bases. You know, I like the way he swings the bat. I want to run like Jackie. You know, that's what those kids were seeing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I, I don't think that it was the real baseball fan. It was the hater who was impersonating a baseball fan mm-hmm. that wanted to come and try to rattle these players, try to spew hate and hope that that hate would spill over and that others would embrace that same level of hate. And to these players' credit, they persevered. Well, we knew what kind of, or we know what kind of ball player Jackie was. What kind of player was Larry Doby? Was he a singles hitter, a guy who hit for average, a power hitter? Tell us about the game that Larry Doby played. Larry Doby, five-tool guy. He five-tool guy, had some power. Line drive hitter, you know, great outfielder, even though he was an infielder by trade as well. He was converted to a, an outfielder. And so Larry had a, a complete game. You know, and that's what I'm saying. When you talk about a team with the Newark Eagles that had Larry Doby, Monty Irvin, and Leon Day, that's some kind of team. And, and they beat the Kansas City Monarchs to win the Negro League World Series in 1946. And, and Buck O'Neill, who won the batting title that year, was playing for the Monarchs. And it was, a, I mean, just a tremendous seven-game series that the Eagles won in seven games. And Leon Day makes a, a great catch on what would have been a game-winning, game-series-clinching hit that Buck O'Neill had, which is one of the reasons why I think he always talked about Leon Day being a better center fielder than he was pitcher because Leon makes that great catch hmm. on him. Uh, and so, no, but Larry was uh, uh, an outstanding ball player. And, and you just, again, you wonder how much better they could have been if they didn't have to deal with all the outside noise, all the pressure that was on them that wasn't just baseball-related pressure. You know, this was social pressure. And, and so, but Larry was a, you know, a five-tool kind of player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but it took a long time before Larry even got inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, we talked about the fact that he was kind of this forgotten guy. Yeah, 1998. Like you said, if you're not first, you're second. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might as well be third, fourth, fifth, whatever. If you're not first. You know, I I think it it, it speaks to how good Larry was because he never played in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. He went straight from the Newark Eagles over to Cleveland and never played a day. In the minor leagues. And his his contribution to Cleveland, like Robinson to Brooklyn, was pretty immediate. In his first full year with the Indians, he hit 301. This is his first full year. 301 with 14 homers, 66 ribbies, had an OPS of 873 in 121 games, 29th in MVP voting. And better than that, 
He hit 318 in the World Series, knocked one out. It's 1948 against the Braves, the last World Series that the Indians wa- have won. One, yeah. Yeah, I mean, since, they haven't won yeah. since since 48. Yeah, no, my, my, my Cleveland Indian fans get tired of hearing me say that, that was the last World Series they won. Well, tell, yeah, tell us about his immediate contributions to the team and the difference he made. You know, the Indians were a good team back then. They just had to contend with the Yankees. I mean, the Yankees well, were yeah. just, and you know. See, they, had, they, had, they had a great pitching staff, and, and I guess you could say they had the misfortune of being at a time when the Yankees were so dominant. But I think about something that Larry Doby had once said, that he tried to get the Indians to sign – Willie Mays, Henry Aaron, and Ernie Banks. And, and that scouting report came back and said that Willie Mays couldn't hit curve ba- couldn't hit curveball, <laughs> that Henry Aaron had a hitch in his swing, and, and that Ernie Banks had no range. <laughs> I hope those scouts were canned after that. Yeah, you know, well, you know, you got to think that the report, the scouting report was very much fictitious. And was it the fact that they just didn't want that many black players on the team? But man, you think about this. Had they made those moves, we would be talking about Cleveland the way you're talking about the New York Yankees of that era. No doubt. The pendulum of power would have shifted, particularly with that great pitching staff led by uh, my good friend, Rapid Robert. Bob Mm -hmm. Mm Feller, who I got to know extraordinarily well through the the years before he passed away. He he and Buck O'Neill were great friends. They hook up. Buck was part of that barnstorming tour with Satchel and his All-Stars playing against Bobby Feller and his All-Stars in 1946. So he and Bob Feller had a long-standing relationship. And so they had a great pitching staff in Cleveland. And if they signed those players, man, the the pendulum of power would have shifted. Mm-hmm. And we would indeed be talking about the Cleveland Indians, just like we talk about the New York Yankees of that time time span. Mm. But somebody made a decision that they didn't want that many black players. Well, they had one of the best back. They had they had one of the best black players in Larry Doby, and he gets on this role. He becomes one of the best, if not the best player on Cleveland. They had a very talented roster. In 1949, as I'm going through this, he cranks out 24 homers, hits 280, is an all-star. In fact, he was an all-star every year from 1949 through 1959. He averaged over 26 home runs a year. 95 ribbies a year, and he hit 285 a season. Those are solid, solid numbers. In 1954, he led the American League with 32 homers and 126 RBI. He finished second in the MVP voting to Yogi Berra. Like we said, the Indians, they're basically the second best team in baseball. Most of these most of the years, yeah. um, but in 54, of course, was a very special year when they won, I think it was 111 games, but they lost to Willie Mays and the New York Giants in the World Series. <laughs> uh, he, he, I mean, Larry is a star, yet 
the Indians and their general manager, Hank Greenberg, traded him away after, I think it was the 55 season. They traded him to the White Sox for Jim Busby and Chico Carasquel, a journeyman outfielder and a journeyman infielder. Why? What kind of general manager was Hank Greenberg? Did he Was he able to take a look into the crystal ball and see <laughs> that he might have known what he was doing? Because really, Larry didn't have real, many more years of real substantial uh, contributions or big numbers after yep. he left Cleveland, I think he had two more years where, you know, with the White Sox that he that he did decently, but his time was sort of coming to an end. So maybe Greenberg knew what he was doing and was just trying to get something in return. And, and that could have very well been, you know, because, like I said, the years that Larry and Jack and these early players from the Negro Leagues, he said they may not have been the equivalent of dog years. You know, dog years is, I guess, supposed to be seven, seven years to our one years in human life. Mm-hmm. But it damn near was. <laughs> Pressure and weight that was on them took its toll over time. And, you know, so they endured so much mm-hmm. that I do think it hurt their longevity to some extent. Well, he went to he went to Chicago. Then he came back to Cleveland. He was reacquired by the Indians in 1958. But really, by then he was just basically a a shell yeah, of what still, he had previously yeah, been. Yeah, all. yeah. He played a few more a few more years. Even even tried to hang on in the minor leagues. Um, I believe he was playing uh, in the PCL for a very very brief moment with the San Diego Padres when they were in the PCL and he broke his ankle. I guess he really didn't have anything left in the tank. And then I read where he tried to make it in Japan. Do you know anything about that? Can you tell us anything about his time in Japan? He's one of the early black players to go to Japan and actually had some success in Japan. And then he came back here. And he tried to make it back in the majors as a coach and a manager. So after his playing days are over, he does become a coach. He bounced around a, a little. And in 1978, Larry Doby once again became the second in baseball <laughs> history to do something again to a guy named Robinson. Frank Robinson became the first black manager in baseball when the, ironically, Indians named him their player manager in 1975. In 78, Doby took over for an ex-Indian, Bob Lemon, um, as manager of the White Sox. Can you tell us anything about Larry as a manager and why he only got, really, a half season to prove himself? Yeah, and I think that's the thing. I don't know if he really ever got a fair chance. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think it was Al Fitzmorris, who lives here in Kansas City, former Royal, who played briefly for Larry and had great respect and admiration for Larry Doby, uh, his baseball acumen, his leadership skills. But I, I, I honestly don't think that he ever got a fair chance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
No, it do- it doesn't sound like it. Here's another interesting aspect to the career of Larry Doby. He actually spent time in the NBA, didn't he? He worked with the Nets when they were in New Jersey. Can you tell us anything about the role he had with the Nets? I mean, he was there for quite some time. Yeah, no, he spent quite a bit of time there. Now, I don't know. You know, I think the Nets were smart enough to know. Because, Larry, you know, Larry was from New Jersey. Uh-huh. And, and Larry had been a sports hero, obviously, there in New Jersey. And a great multi-sport athlete. So it was smarter than Nets to bring him into the organization, uh, probably in the ways in which you see a lot of guys who continue even in their baseball careers as in an advisory role, that kind of thing. But it's really more of just having them still involved with the franchise. And I think the Nets were very smart to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, Buck O'Neill remained a scout, quote unquote, for the Kansas City Royals well after his scouting years were over. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buck would go to the stadium and still chart pitches, but his primary role was PR. Mm-hmm. You know, he was there signing autographs and taking pictures with fans and and being Buck O'Neill. And so I'm sure it was a lot of that with Larry and his involvement with the Nets, but it was a smart move by the Nets to have one of their native sons intimately involved within the organization. Um, you know, and again, it just goes to show the respect and admiration that people had for Larry Doby, even though he didn't get all the fanfare that that Jackie got, but at least in his home in it in his in the in his home neck of his woods in the home in his home state and close to where he grew up mm-hmm. there was this respect and admiration mm-hmm. bob there's so much that we can talk about when it comes to larry doby and his time in major league baseball and i and i and i've probably have only scratched the surface with you is there any one point that i have not covered that you would like to mention before we wrap up today's episode? Is there anything I've missed that, you know, hey, Warren, you need to mention this. We need to say this about Larry Doby. No, you know, I, I just think that, you know, number one, I'm, I'm really proud to talk about Larry Doby because I don't think that he got nearly enough love and still doesn't get nearly enough love in the, and for his barrier-breaking role. But, you know, it's almost apropos to Larry Doby, who was so quiet and so understated throughout his career. Uh, in many ways, I think he really didn't want that level of attention. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but it is great that he is getting what I believe is his just due, you know, even though it is after his passing. You know, I've always appreciated talking about the history of the Negro Leagues and what this museum represents what it embodies uh, as we try to keep the legacy of the Negro Leagues alive. And Mm -hmm. so we just appreciate these opportunities to shine light on this story. You know, I certainly want to encourage those who will be listening to your your show to consider supporting this museum. If you're not a member of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, please visit our website at nlbm.com and consider becoming a member or if nothing else, make a contribution to this museum. Mm -hmm. And if your travels bring you to Kansas City, we hope that you will come and experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It's important that the legacy of the Negro Leagues plays on long after there are no more Negro Leaguers to attest to just what this league represented. And that's the work that we're doing here in Kansas City, very proudly. And we love to have as many people join our efforts to keep the legacy of the Negro Leagues alive. 
Absolutely. Um, and, and let me ask you one last thing here. Is there any way to experience, you know, the Larry Doby exhibit, anything like that, if, if someone can't make it out to Kansas City, can they experience any of the exhibits online? Is there a place, you know, do you go to nlbm.com? Um, is there any way to experience anything online? Yeah, no, we're, we're starting to move more digital experiences online. We just finished a wonderful experience with Microsoft. That's a digital tour of the museum. We're right now in the process of digitizing that barrier breaker exhibit and creating a, an experience in and around that, which I hope will be available here really soon. So stay on, you know, please, please be on the lookout for that. Well, Bob, I want to thank you so much for spending just a little bit of time with me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Like I said in the beginning, um, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you here. I am thrilled you accepted my invitation, and I certainly hope you will accept another invitation to come back sometime and talk more about these forgotten stars of baseball. Yeah, no, I appreciate the opportunity and you know exactly where I am. And so, you know, I enjoy talking about these players and about this history. And so thanks for having me on the show. Anytime, Bob. Thank you so much. Okay, Warren. Appreciate it, man. I want to thank my guest again, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. To find out more about the museum, check out the site, nlbm.com. That's nlbm.com. Okay, next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I welcome back an old friend, Tony Parker. And we're heading back out to the fairways, and we're going to talk about another of golf's forgotten heroes, a PGA champion, Denny Shue. That's next time for now. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.